Welcome to Utah State University Extension's Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. In this week's episode, Michael Karen talks about many fruit options for your yard. Utah State University intern Annie Smith also discusses a new recipe she found using beads, white beans, and she turns them into brownies. Don't get disgusted because it's delicious. And finally, I talk about what to do about bindweed in the middle of the summer. It's all about being patient at this point. But welcome, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'm with Michael Karen, and it seems like this year that many less common fruit are becoming more popular. And Michael, the first one on the list is honeyberry, and you actually have a few of these in your yard. Yeah, I just have two in my yard, but uh, they're, I think, going into their third year, and they did produce a little bit of fruit last year. It does taste somewhat similar to blueberry, but these things um, can actually tolerate the high pH soils that we have in in Utah and the Intermountain West, where blueberries can't. No, and that's part of what spurred this, is I watched several groups on Facebook, and there's been a big why can't I grow blueberries in Utah debate going on? And we thought we'd talk about some alternatives and just other, what we'd call minor fruit. So what do you think of the honeyberries? Well, I think they're a lot, I think they're very promising. They're super cold hardy, tolerant of the high pH. Uh, They do need to have um, another variety to to cross pollinate with. So you have to, to grow at least two different varieties. And are they pretty, or are they kind of rangy, but happen to produce fruit? What? They're actually not bad looking. I mean, they're not, they're slow growing. They're, they're slow growing. So you've got to wait a while for them to really come into their own. So how long ago did you plant yours? It's been about three years. And how tall are they now? Well, about uh, 18 inches. Oh, they really yeah, are slow then. they're quite slow growing. I wonder if there's other varieties that grow faster. I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. There, there was a commercial planting in the Bear Lake area that I visited a few years ago. Uh, and the plants there are, uh, they were about six feet tall. So quite a bit, quite a bit taller. And that's, that seems to be pretty typical. So where blueberry bushes, you know, would get even taller than that. Uh, they're not quite that big and they're not quite as woody. So it looks like if they're surviving Bear Lake, that they really will grow almost anywhere in the state. Yeah, they're very, they're very cold hardy. I think they'll struggle in southern Utah because they really do prefer the cold. Now, another one that we've had a lot of interest in over the last, I've been in extension over 10 years and I hear about them every year. And it seems like this year, especially people want to grow goji berries. And you actually have this one in your yard too. Yeah, well, this one's a hard one to get rid of if you want to get rid of it. Uh, it does. Uh, so, the goji berry is is kind of touted as one of those superfood plants. The, the the small, very small red berries uh, are are very nutritious. They're not very palatable, um, and so they're commonly used. At least this is how I used them: was in smoothies and mixed in with uh, other foods just to kind of hide the flavor. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like asparagus a little bit. But this is a plant that, I mean, it can it, it can be almost like a vine and can get very, very large. And it also spreads 
uh, kind of like raspberries do with rhizomes and so or mint so it's it it can be very difficult to keep in check or to remove it if you decide you wanted to plant something else in that spot i don't know what varieties and how many are available but i know that the one of the more common ones was actually found in the west desert or excuse me park valley area and it was found to be extremely hardy, faster growing, and highly productive. And it was actually planted by the Chinese during the construction of the Intercontinental Railroad. And there's patches of this stuff out through the West Desert and Park Valley, I think Pocatello Valleys, that have survived for over 150 years with just natural precipitation. Yeah, they're super hardy. Um, they... <clears throat> I believe, um, well, they are native to, to Asia and, and have been used, long been used in traditional Chinese um, medicine and cuisine. I've seen pictures in China where they grow these, and it's actually in areas that are semi-arid, like Utah. So I think they're very happy here, but they almost grow them like grapes to where they're trellised. And it looks like that they really cut these back hard. And when I was looking at the rows, they must cultivate the rows regularly to keep the suckers from sprouting up everywhere. Because the, if you grow goji, they really do require constant attention. Uh, and like in my yard, we, we had it in the ground a couple of years and then we removed it because we wanted to you know, put some other things in that spot and we weren't really loving the space that it took up for the amount of fruit that it gave us. And so um, we, we still have, and that, that's been now three years, we took that out, and now we, we still are dealing with shoots that are coming up from that. I would for sure not try and discourage anybody from growing it because it's actually very easy to grow. And, and it does produce a lot of berries. They're just, they're very, very small. At one point at the Logan Gardener's Market, the dried berries were selling for $15 a pound. And people, exactly how you use them, they were taking them and putting a handful of them into a shake or a smoothie and blending them because they, they're they more nutritious than most other superfoods out there. Right. Yeah, they're very nutritious. But, but like I said, at least to me, they weren't very palatable. Now, we'll move on to something a little more palatable, service berry. Yeah, service berry is a native shrub and uh, to the Intermountain West, and it, it grows in the mountainous areas. Um, it's, it's actually fairly drought tolerant overall. Um, but if you want to get a lot of berries off of it, it does need regular irrigation to really avoid being stressed. But this is one I've actually, I've actually got one in my yard called, uh, Regents and it, it produces a huge amount of fruit in the spring. I don't have a second one. It's self-fertile. Um, if I can beat the deer to it, very good berries. Um, they, to me, they actually taste quite a bit like blueberries. I, I actually really like them. So pruning on this one, eventually, what would you recommend for somebody that wants to maintain a shrub for fruit production? Well, number one is, or make sure you know what age of wood it flowers on. Does it, does it bear fruit on? Is it last year's growth or this year's growth? So what I, what I've tried to do is do a, a renewal pruning to where you cut the oldest stems out of the base and you take about 20% of them a year 
And so you don't ever have any branches over five years old because the fruit production comes off branches between two and four. And on that fifth year, it really starts to slow down on the oldest branches. I've had these in the past. I've had neighbors that grew them. That's what's recommended. But I wanted to talk to you because you've had a lot more experience with them. Like I said, I really like it. Um, I, one thing that I have noticed, I haven't really, really had to prune much out of it. It's pretty well behaved. This particular variety that I have is very well behaved. Uh, it's a little bit shorter. I think, I think maybe it'll it'll reach five or six feet, but it's not in any hurry to get there. And then it just produces lots and lots of berries in the spring. And there's also several species, and some of them actually will turn into trees. Yes. Yeah. There's tree. There's tree forms. There's different species of those. Uh, and I have no experience with having the fruit off of those. I've but had it a does few get produced pretty high up once they, they get some and size. And so, serviceberry tree is actually one of my favorite tree. Autumn brilliance is the one you usually find in garden centers, but there's others. And we've talked about it on the greenhouse show at least once a year for the last six years. And I've had the fruit on it, and it tastes really good. It doesn't get quite as big as the regions. But birds love it. And so I always tell people that the, the Autumn Brilliant Service Berry, the tree form, is pretty much fruitless because within, literally, when that is ripe, within a few hours, it's gone. Yeah. And I do see that, too, as well. If I don't get to the berries uh, soon enough, then the, bir the birds will, the bir between the deer and the birds, they'll clean it out. So you're growing figs, too. Well, I have one fig, Chicago Hardy. And we've actually gotten quite a few figs off it. We actually had uh, to move it. One of the things with these, even with these hardy figs, is um, like I tried to plant in a protected area in my house where it would be uh, a little bit warmer throughout the winter. And I actually uh, think that was actually a huge problem because it would die. It was just dying back to the ground every every year. But but it wasn't doing that until it's it would start to leaf out in April, and then we'd have another hard frost. And, and it would kill it down back down to the ground. So if I, I've actually moved it to my yard where it's not up against anything warm, so it actually stays dormant longer. We're going we're to try that and see if we can actually get the tree form to stay up. But this particular variety, um, we still get some figs off of it because it actually bears fruit on current season's growth. It just, just comes on late, late so in the season. Normally, they have two two crops there's the is the summer called crop called the braba crop and i don't even know what the fall one's called i i don't know i shouldn't even be bringing it up but what will ha what happens where they're a little more cold hardy is you'll actually get a summer crop and a fall crop due to how they grow and what will happen here like yours, it grows up from growth from the roots, and then you get a fall crop. But those are actually supposed to be better fruit they than the previous good. one. Yeah, they taste good, and fights over uh, getting there first when they when they see them getting ready to be picked. So, and they they have a tendency. My my daughters and my wife have a tendency to pick them a little early in the fight to get to them first, but they're still pretty good. And that they'll, gosh, they'll they'll produce a good part of the season if if they overwinter well and they're, they're not too cold. You mentioned Chicago Hardy. Are there other varieties you would recommend? You've got that one. I a lot of nurseries brown carry brown turkey, and yeah. that one is also 
I know it's it, when I say reliably hardy, it will come back from root every year. Also, and Correct. I know people growing it. Yeah. So my understanding with with brown turkey is that it doesn't it doesn't produce fruit as reliably on current seasons growth. So if it dies back to the ground, there's a there's a good chance you'll you'll never get any figs off of it. And so the Chicago Hardy is the preferred variety. For me. For as little as we know, it seems <laughs> to work. It seems to work. So some other fruit I wanted to talk about that are sporadically grown, and I think that there is some growing interest in homesteading circles. One of them is elderberry or elder, depending on where you're at the United States. Right. So this is one that um, actually is has been used a lot for preserves, jams, jellies, and so on. Um, and there's a lot of uh, ornamental varieties out there now, which actually still produce fruit and you know still edible, and you can still make it into jam. This has actually been touted a lot lately as uh, a really good replacement for Japanese maple. As far as ornamental qualities. As far as ornamental qualities, because it, it tolerates the heat, tolerates the dry air, it tolerates the high soil pH that we have. And there's lacy leaf varieties out there, very similar in look to Japanese exactly. maples. And it's similar in size. I mean, 12 to 15 feet typically. But what happens to them if you don't renewal prune? Well, all of the the, the flowering either moves way out or just it stops altogether. I've seen that they can become a somewhat rangy if you don't re renewal prune. And I, I think we mentioned this earlier, but that's where you go in toward the base and take about 20 to 25% of the branches out every year. Now, and there's, there's actually, uh, you can actually train these to be more of a tree form, uh, which is what I prefer just architecturally because they look better that way to me. Um, or you can have multiple shoots coming out, you know, kind of right at, right at ground level. So it really just depends on what your preference is. Uh, but I, I like to kind of get mine up where they're more tree-like. So the ornamental varieties are available at many garden centers. I've seen yellow leaf, red leaf, very frilly, lacy leaf types. Black. Black. Black satin, isn't that the newest kind of latest and greatest variety out? Yeah, is it called black satin? I have to look it up. Yeah, well, I, I have I think two it's different black ones satin. in my yard. They're both... One's the lacy leaf and one's not, and they but they're both really dark. Proven Winners has has some selections out there that are really that are really ornamental. And Proven Winners are also available. The line or the company's products are available at most garden centers. Yeah, you can find those pretty reliably through, during most of the growing season. Now, on the elderberry plants, you can order these online for fruit production, and they bloom a little bit later than most other shrubs and they also produce a little bit later it could be into october before you actually harvest these because they need to have that time to sweeten up on the vine so to speak and when you pick them they will have some stems but what i've seen people do is that they'll freeze them in the in the freezer and put them in an old piddle case and then just kind of bash them on the cement so you don't want to hit it so hard that it shatters them but if you hit them pretty hard they come off the stems and then you can just comb the stems out and get a pretty good 
start on processing them. Once they're frozen, you do need to process them into jams, jellies, whatever you're going to do. Right. And some juicers um, will handle that stuff just fine as well. They can just be juiced and then made in made into a jam so if you steam them for juice then you haven't had any problems with the stems and they're with them like grapes you i never take the grapes off the stems and i juice those right hey I, I, my mom used to make elderberry syrup and i she only made it a couple of years my dad decided that we were going to forage off the side of the mountain and we'd pick service berries and elder and mulberries and other things and he wanted my mom to do something with it but i I remember specifically even from when i was six or seven years old that this elderberry syrup was just delicious and it's one that i would consider if, especially if I had access to them, that I would make that again just because I remember it being so good. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I've got a little bit of jam. In fact, I just finished it up uh, that was given to me. And uh, it's it looks a bit like grape jam, but has a much stronger flavor. It's very unique, but but quite tasty. So it's a couple of fruit that we've experimented with and had mostly failure. And I don't want to end on a sour note, so to speak. <laughs> unintended. I, unintended. <laughs> but pomegranates and uh, the other one I didn't write down was the hardy kiwis. And the pomegranates, we've actually, it's not that we've had really hard research going on, but between the two of us, we've planted over 20 of them along the Wasatch Front. Now, these are varieties that um, were touted to be uh, especially cold hardy. Down to 10 below zero sometimes, right. and these are not the California wonderful variety right. pomegranates. And um, I had two, and uh, one actually overwintered and survived and was growing really nicely for about three years, and then, and then uh, it, didn't, it didn't make it. We had one in Orem at the Central Utah Water Conservancy District Garden, and it grew for a couple of years and then petered out, probably the same year yours died. And the only one I know of that's still growing really well is by a, one of our colleagues at KSL that babies it just like it's a grandkid or a puppy, and it gets covered every year, and hers is getting upwards of four or five feet high, but it's been treated so well that it's beyond what I think most people would be willing to do. Right, exactly. And so I think I think a lot of this again falls into the if it's in the right area, um it it, it might it might make it for a while. Um but really what I think needs to happen with, with them is kinda like the story with my fig tree is I, I really think they need to be in an area of the yard where they, they can go dormant and stay there and, and stay consistently cold until the weather reliably warms up. And I, I think that what Maria is doing is taking the basket of leaves off in mid-March and letting it acclimate from there with the climate because it's not cold enough to damage it usually from there. Uh, the other person I know grew, successfully growing pomegranate lives above the oil refineries in Bountiful on the bench and they actually have a 200 day growing season one of the warmest areas of the Wasatch Front where the other one is it's for the Wasatch Front is quite warm and so I this is one that I don't have hard data but I personally if you live down by Utah Lake or the Great Salt Lake I wouldn't even attempt it 
Yeah, I wonder where you have that cold air drainage. And it's the, it's the temperature fluctuations that really become the hardest thing for some of these. It's, it's not that they can't handle the cold. It's they can't handle the warming up and then it getting cold again. Yeah, so the Solovatsky variety we grew is reportedly hardy to 10 below zero. Right. And, and, and it I was believe that it is. But it needs to stay consistently cold throughout the winter. And then when it warms up in the spring, it needs to warm up and stay there. And that's very unpredictable. Yeah, and the, the other one we get a lot of questions about are the cold, hardy kiwis. You'll see these in magazines advertised as Arctic kiwis, mm-hmm. which is a load of crap. <laughs> you know, they, they, are, they will grow in fairly cold areas, but they are, they are not growing up with Santa. No, they're not. I think really, for the most part, they're probably only hardy to about zone five. And these are different kiwi than, the, you know, the say the Australian kiwi or whatever that you the buy Zealand, at the, the store. The store-bought. Yeah, the New Zealand kiwis, which are large, fuzzy fruits. These are small, almost grape-like fruits that aren't fuzzy and, and don't need peeling. And they're sweeter. They're sweeter. Um, they also require uh, – so it's, it's a male and female plant situation. So um, you have to have at least one of each – to, to, in order to pollinate the female plant to get, to get fruit. And the general rule of thumb is, is that one, one male kiwi plant can provide enough pollen um, for up to five female kiwi vines. So he has a harem. Yes. Um, in my Folks, experience excuse with me, them... It's late. I maybe edit that out, but go ahead. Sorry. My experience with them is that they, they seem to be very difficult to transplant. I do know of some, some that are growing and are large and produce fruit. Um, unfortunately, me personally, I've never gotten mine to make it that long. You mentioned the ones at Willard Bay Garden. Our colleague and friend, Michael Peep, has one of his parents that is on the Bountiful Bench again that survives. But again, Willard near Willard Bay and Bountiful Bench are very protected, warmer areas too. Yeah, and I think that, um, again, I, I really think that that's one. And in fact, l- most of the literature on the hardy kiwi says that it, it, is, it has almost no tolerance at all for the warm, the warm up and then the, the cool back down again. Once it warms up, it needs to stay warming up or, or it can be killed back to the ground. And, and then, then it really done. struggles. It really struggles after that. Yeah, I, where these are native in Asia does get cold. But, you know, there's a lot of fruit that we eat native to that general area. And once it warms up, it it stays warm. They don't have the fluctuations that we get from warm to cold, warm to cold through April and May. It just it warms up and stays yeah, so like I said, you can find areas where they seem to be pretty happy, um, but uh, they're not—they're not really getting any protection or babied. They need—they need to get to get cold, stay cold, and they—they um, they tend to want to come out of dormancy as soon as it starts warming up, and that's—that's that's danger for a lot of places along the, the Intermountain Corridor. No, I've been asked if you can drape tarps over the wires you would train the kiwis on or blankets do you find that practical not really and and for me i i i don't like to make gardening harder than it needs to be and so uh 
it's not a high enough value to me. Like I, I'd, I'd rather try it, and if it doesn't work out for me, I'll put in grapes or, or something. Something that's highly productive, that's mm-hmm. reliable here, that there's so many varieties that haven't been grown that are perfectly fine. That I Me mean, personally, even though it's cool to grow these hardy kiwis, I would almost rather plant grapes because I know they're going to survive. Right. And so my, my approach to it is, is that I'm, I'm willing to, to try them and to um, get, gain a little bit of experience with them. But the, but the, the end of the day, I, I also have a life and I don't, I, I don't want to be hauling tarps around and, and dealing with straw and all of those kinds of things. My older brother is a very accomplished hobby gardener. He grows a lot of things successfully. And I, I remember he lived in Mississippi and was growing tropical hibiscus. And in that climate, you have to cover them, and there's a lot you do to overwinter them. And after about two years, I asked him, How your, how's your hibiscus? And I tore them out. He said, it just wasn't worth it. And he says, there's hardier hibiscus I can grow. And even though, yeah, I can go out and do it, he just... For him, no amount of like just that extra care got to the point that it, it just it was a chore and not fun anymore. Yeah, so that's it for me. Is like if it, if it stops becoming fun, then I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to things that I that I think will be fun and I'll try those. So um, the, uh, playing with the hardy kiwi's been fun, but I I probably re- replanted it four times and putting them different varieties of different parts of my yard and uh nothing really seems to stick around more than a couple of years and so it's like well i'm gonna i'm gonna move on i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pour 100 and they're expensive at the garden centers relatively i see them priced anywhere from 30 to 50 dollars for a container that has a female and then you've got to buy the male or if they're doubled up then it's still anywhere from 30 to 50 maybe 60 dollars so it's an investment i i talked to a gardener several years ago that had the theory that if you're going to try marginally hardy plants like the kiwis the pomegranates his theory was to plant them three times in three spots that were optimal, and if they didn't survive the three spots, he moved on. And yeah, I, I've always liked that policy. And that's where I'm at with the kiwi. So I'm not I'm not planning anymore. Uh, I I had one that uh, one that was still alive, one female. The males die have all died. Uh, one female that was still alive, um, going into this fall, this last fall. And so I'll keep an eye on it and and see what happens. But even if it, even if it grows, like I said, the the male the males have died and so i would never get fruit on it anyway but if it if it decides to all of a sudden take off i'm gonna let it grow because it'll make it it'll make a nice you know fence row but i'm i'm done i've moved on and i've actually planted grapes which makes sense since you are we'll call you the grape specialist but you are a person that we turn to for all things grapes mike i appreciate your time it's late and You've got lots to do, so I will wrap it up there. But thank you very much. Yeah, Netflix is waiting. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Have a good night. See ya. I'm back with Utah State University Extension intern Annie Smith, and she's been baking again. Annie, how are you doing? I'm so great. 
That is awesome. So what did you make this week? This week I made something kind of wild. It's brownies with white beans and beets as the base of the batter. So white beans and beets. Mm -hmm. And if I wouldn't have tried this, I would have told you, nah. Oh, I almost told myself, nah, while I was blending up the batter. But it turned out pretty good. Says me. (laughs) Just right off the bat, you cannot taste white beans or beets in this recipe. Yeah, I I don't think I would have known if I hadn't made it myself. (laughs) No. So what does the recipe have? Mostly kitchen staples, vanilla extract, egg, uh, all-purpose flour, baking soda, sea salt, uh, cocoa powder. But then instead of a normal sweetener like sugar, you use maple syrup or honey. I used maple syrup and then a can of white beans and a medium-sized beet that you just steam and blend. Um, And then I threw in some semi-sweet chocolate chips too. Just So how big of a cake pan did you bake this in? I think a 9 by 13, but I think it would work in an 8 by 8 too, which is the size people usually cook brownies in. So this recipe amazed me when I was looking through it because it only has one half cup of wheat flour. It was originally a vegan recipe and I just adapted it because I didn't have some of the ingredients in my kitchen. But it's it would be so easy to make vegan or gluten-free again. The differences were rolled oats and flaxseed in place of eggs, and then all of a sudden it's vegan. Yep. You brought these brownies in, and I had kind of not remembered that you were making (laughs) bean and beet brownies. I know you had mentioned this wild recipe, and when I ate one of these brownies, it was delicious. It was light, lighter than a normal brownie, and had no beet or bean flavor to it. Yeah, I don't think it tastes like the kind you get out of a box, but I think it's still good. I liked that it wasn't as dense. It's almost more cakey than it is Yeah, brownie When I eat the gooey brownies, there's a place for that. Mm-hmm. But when I sampled these brownies, they were nice because I didn't feel like I just ate a rock. Yeah, <laughs> they were just they weren't cake light, but they were lighter than normal brownies. And the other thing that was really nice was they were moist. They're they're super fun to make and they were way easier than I thought they were going to be. The thing that took the very longest was taking care of the beet. And that was mostly just boiling it until it was soft enough to cut up. But it was as easy as a normal brownie recipe, I think. And it gives you a lot of veggies while you're eating it too. So I definitely ate one for lunch. It was very good. It was satisfying. And I, like I said, I I didn't come away feeling like I just ate a rock Mm -hmm. as far as just has something heavy. And it's one of those feelings like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And I've tried, I've tried vegan recipes before and I've never been a huge fan. This is definitely my favorite, but I think this is something that kids would eat and not question that they're getting a brownie. (laughs) So we'll post the recipe in the show notes, but as you were making this recipe, did you notice anything that caught your eye as far as how you prepared it? It was pretty simple. The only thing was just being careful to make sure the beans were washed and blended well. I had to blend it just to make sure that there are no clumps. That was the biggest And so did you use a standard blender or food processor? Yeah, I used a little Ninja, and it worked great. Did your sister sample them? 
She did. And what did she, she think? She's even on a diet and she, she ate another one. And so. After a healthy meal, I would have no problems eating, you know, a, cu- a two inch by two inch square of this and feeling like I just broken my diet. The ingredients are by and large healthy ones. And so I don't think they that. Are. It's something to feel guilty about. Nothing I would have ever expected in a brownie recipe, but very delicious. I'm glad you liked them. Utah State University Extension has several social media sites and one of them on Facebook is called Utah Gardening Experts. A really common question I see is what can I do to control filled bindweed? Filled bindweed is often known as morning glory and plant scientists and horticulturists prefer the filled bindweed name because we don't want to disparage a sometimes useful and pretty plant, morning glory, which is an annual. Filled bindweed is related to it and is perennial and is very difficult to get rid of, as many people know. Right now, filled bindweed is at its worst in many people's yards and gardens, and the intent by many homeowners is to spray it out or what can I do to get rid of it and caution is needed because many of the herbicides that are registered for use against field bindweed also have temperature restrictions and so you can't spray when it's above 85 to 90 degrees depending on what the label states. Now, even at that threshold of 85 degrees, I am still super cautious, and there's just such a likelihood that the active ingredients in these products, such as 2,4-D or dicamba, will get to places that you don't want them. 2,4-D has a tendency to volatilize at hot temperatures, and it drifts in the wind and it runs into desirable plants. And so tomatoes, grapes, um, linden trees, many things, any broadleaf plant is susceptible, but those three we see quite a few of. And so it's really not an appropriate time to be putting down these lawnweed killers or the products containing 2,4-D to control field bindweed at this point. The best time to apply these is actually in early fall when temperatures are consistently below 80 degrees and we've had a couple of light frosts. So what to do in the middle of the summer? In areas where you just have field bindweed and they're not desirable plants, you can go ahead and spray it out with a glyphosate-containing product. Roundup is the most popular, well-known one, but there are others such as Killzall and many other generics. So if you're going to do this, um, 
you will get temporary control. It'll yellow the bindweed, or it may just kill the tops, but it will set it back enough that it's not going to thrive throughout the summer. You may need to do a couple of applications before fall. Otherwise, if it is in your flower beds, you may just need to go in and hand pull it. There are some things that you might be able to do as far as very careful spraying, but for what I'm talking about here, it's probably not appropriate to go to that length of time and in depth that much just for fear of maybe somebody misinterpreting what my advice might be. Now, if you're going to avoid pesticides, herbicides, I totally get it. Be aware that field bindweed needs to be cultivated or hand-pulled about every two to three weeks. If you do this, it will take anywhere from probably seven to nine years of being consistent to sap the energy from the roots because it roots about nine to 12 feet deep. So good luck. Um, Stay tuned for further advice as time goes on. And as somebody that has lots of field bindweed in my yard, I feel your pain. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension.